morning, the maximum temperature around 17 degrees during the day. A fresh to uh, moderate uh, northeasterly winds, occasionally strong offshore. At first, the outlook mainly fine in the next couple of days. Cloudy with temperatures rising slightly on Lunar New Year's Eve and Lunar New Year's Day. The cold weather warning is in force. The red fire danger warning is also in force. Uh, it is currently 12 Celsius, uh, 57% relative humidity. This is James Ross with Money Talk. Uh, I will be back with you on Saturday for the greatest hits of music at 10. Pass six. But right now, before back chat, here's the news headlines with Barry. Lawmaker Gary Zhang says there's no need for quotas on express rail tickets to the mainland. The high-speed train service resumed on Sunday, one week after the mainland border reopened. Authorities have since twice raised the ticket quota to cope with demand. It's now at 20,000 a day. Mr Zhang said the authorities can limit the number of passengers simply by adjusting the frequency of trains. First of all, all the tickets, they are sold in a real name system. So under the current train timetable, there is naturally a limit over there already. Uh, like, for example, we are having 39 trains to Shenzhen and Guangzhou. The capacity of each train is around 600 people per train. So naturally, we already have uh, 20,000 passenger capacity for each day. A property agent says there's been a significant bounce in sentiment and activity since the mainland border reopened a week and a half ago. Nicholas Brook, the chairman of Professional Property Services, says mainland buyers have been targeting new projects in Hong Kong as investment properties or second homes. He said that unlike local buyers, mainlanders often pay in cash, meaning they can negotiate discounts of up to 8% and aren't constrained by rising interest rates. He told RTHK he expected property prices to flatten in these short to medium term and edge up as much as 5% in the second half of the year. We've seen a downturn of about 15% over the last 14-15 months and people were forecasting a further adjustment, downward adjustment to 5-10% to but I think what's happened is this interest in the opening of the border has meant that that potential downturn I think is likely to stall if you like. We're going to see a flattening of the market. The downward adjustment if you like is probably now unlikely to occur and then begin to edge upwards if you like we might see 3 to 5% uh, in the second half of the year. Chief Executive John Lee says he hopes to remove all remaining COVID restrictions by the end of this year. He also told the Commercial Daily newspaper he wants to end the compulsory wearing of face masks by the end of March. A University of Hong Kong infectious diseases expert, Ivan Hung, said easing the rules as soon is possible because the SAR's population has a high level of hybrid immunity from vaccinations and earlier infections. Definitely a very possible and realistic plan to lift all the uh, infection control measures within this year. Uh, in fact, I think this could be done even earlier. Perhaps, first of all, lifting the isolation order after the Chinese New Year if there's no further surge of cases. And secondly, perhaps removing the mask mandate in early March will also be, uh, be feasible. Cathay Pacific's Flight Attendance Union says it will begin a work-to-rule campaign tomorrow, despite the airline's insistence that it has addressed concerns about staff rosters. But the union said it had withdrawn an application to stage a rally today after the airline refused permission for the protest to take place on its premises. Andrew Tarovsky reports. 
The Cafe Pacific Airways Flight Attendants Union said last month that it was considering a work-to-rule protest to seek better roster arrangements and longer layovers for its members. It says the airline hasn't responded to its demands and that management rejected a request for a meeting yesterday. However, Cafe says it's been communicating directly with cabin crew and has implemented changes to its rosters from this month in response to their concerns. It told passengers that services will continue as scheduled. In a separate development, CAFE has followed Hong Kong Express in cancelling some flights to Japan next month in response to restrictions imposed by the Japanese government. It says passengers will be moved to other flights and customers don't need to get in touch. Prosecutors in Brussels have struck a deal with one of the main suspects in a corruption scandal at the European Parliament that's alleged to involve Qatar and Morocco. Both countries deny claims that they bribed officials. A former politician in the chamber, Pierre Antonio Panzeri, has promised to tell all in exchange for a reduced prison sentence. The BBC's Jessica Parker has more details. We're told that he has undertaken to make substantial, revealing, truthful and complete statements regarding the involvement of third parties and specifically what we're told is investigators will get information on the modus operandi of this uh, alleged criminal network, financial arrangements with other countries, the financial structures and the involvement of known or unknown persons, including the identity of people we're told that he admits to having bribed. And finally, the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg is among a group of campaigners who've been briefly detained during protests in Germany. Ms Thunberg joined demonstrators who were attempting to stop the expansion of a coal mine which will lead to the destruction of the village of Lutzerath. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Back chat for Wednesday, January the 18th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Jenny Lam. Today we're looking at China's birth control policy after the country recorded its first population decline in six decades. China's population was down by roughly 850,000 to about 1.4 billion at the end of 2022 as birth rates plunged to record lows. Births also outnumbered uh, deaths, also, also outnumbered births. 9.56 million babies were born and 10.4 million, uh, 10.41 million people passed away. Cities across China have announced new cash incentives to encourage couples to have more children. But will they have those babies? We'll ask our guests today. And after 9.15, we're looking at a new study center dedicated to ethnic minority children that have special education needs. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page which is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat uh, at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And today we'd like to start off by welcoming to the show Paul Yip, Chair, Professor, Population Health, Department of Social Work and Social Administration, University of Hong Kong. Good morning, uh, Professor Yip. Uh, maybe he's the one we just uh, dropped off the line, but I, we expect Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst, is with us this morning. Good morning, uh, Mr. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Doing all right, doing all right. We also have uh, Ben Cavender, Managing Director, China Market Research Group. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I think we're going to take it right back to the beginning. Mark O'Neill, uh, apparently you were, you were at the coalface of uh, intervention in births in China in the, the village of, uh, a village in Hebei 
when you visited uh, the village uh, being administrated by Ma Yin Chu. Can you, can you tell us who Ma Yin Chu was and what that was? No, well, no it's a separate. Ma Yin Chu was a very distinguished Chinese economist. He got PhDs in the United States. He came back to China. He was the chancellor of Beijing University. And he analyzed the very rapid population growth after 49 because there'd been, you know, war with Japan and civil war very unusual conditions. So after 49, the birth rate uh, grew very rapidly. So he uh, made an analysis and he proposed to Chairman Mao that China could not go on with this rate of population growth and that uh, China would have to have family planning. And his suggestion was a voluntary system. So he made this proposal at the NPC in 1957. It was called the New Population Theory. Now, Mao detested this idea. He thought more people meant a stronger country, a stronger army. So he fired uh, Mao, and any discussion of family planning was outlawed. So this is 1957, right? Yeah. So by 1975, the population has reached 916 million, right? Which is a 40% increase over the figure in 1950, mm. okay? So the official studies after Mao's death concluded that if they had followed Mao's advice, which is very sensible, China would have had 300 million less people. But because the population had grown so fast, they then implemented you know, the one-child policy, which is the most stringent population policy in the history of the world, and that has been in place since 2016. So the reason why we are where, the reason why we are today is because uh, Chairman Mao ignored um, Ma Yin-Chu's uh, proposals. And if it had been done then, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, rise in population would have been much more gradual and much more humane. Right. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit late to talk about that now. So, um, uh, <laughs> Professor um, Paul Yip, was Mao... Right or wrong? More people? Does that necessarily mean a stronger country? I think when you look at uh, what has happening in China, I think in the 50s and 60s, I think we do face a lot of constraints, I think, in our, in our resources, I think, to feed that many people. So I think at that time when uh, it introduced this uh, one-child policy, I think uh, it had served the purposes at that time. But haven't said that, but I think, as you see, the population has changed quite uh, drastically. So now uh, we are seeing that China is also relaxing the policy now. But what we see, uh, the we have a negative growth uh, from this year. But it is not only happening in China. It actually it has been happening in many other countries as well. I think we can see Japan, South Korea, Singapore. I think all these so-called high-income uh, Asian societies, I think we are facing this sort of negative population growth. So I think what happened now is, is we just have to live with it and then to, to try to find a way and how to uh, find a soft landing, I think, the policy, I think, just to ensure that the population, I think, can grow in a way 
that we still can be sustainable, I think, in the future. Right. I mean, you know, obviously the great worry is the impact on the economy for a country that's so dependent on manufacturing. Um, so, but, but, but the, you know, the, the mainland government does have a, uh, they, they have proposed switching to, you know, high, higher level, high tech um, manufacturing rather than sort of making continuously making cheap products. Do you see that, do you, do you see that uh, economic transformation happening and therefore p perhaps a population decline is, is not as negative as we think? Well, I think China has been working very hard, I think, to move away from this labor-intensive manufacturing, so-called world factory, to a more knowledge-based and consumer market. I think, uh, I think what you have seen, I think now we uh, move a, a lot uh, on the automation, the robotics, and then you can see there's, um, there's, um, uh, there's um, driverless car I mean, that's happening in China, and also this manufacturing, um, the whole industry, I think it should have shifted to automation. I think the sign is good, but I think, but we still, we are talking about a sheer um, number of population uh, that might not have all the skill set, I think. Uh, so I think we still have to invest a lot on the training, and also I think in the restructuring of our economy, such that we can actually can provide enough, I think, food and then the money to support, I think, that amount of population. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 400 million people in China still haven't accessed the internet ever in their lives. Uh, Marcus Langston on our Facebook page says it's too late. China's OCP has ensured that it will be old before it's rich. Um, ben Cavender, have we, have we, I mean, there was an earlier reference to Japan and Korea, you know, having population booms as well as they rose, but they got, they got richer before they got older, not, not rich before they got old, but they got richer certainly before they got older. What, what's your take on, on, is it, is it too late? Is China doomed to be old before it really gets wealthy? I mean, uh, you know, I think there, there is a very real challenge right now, which is that if you speak with, uh, somebody who would be maybe a, a white-collar millennial or Gen Z consumer right now in China, um, they're very protective of their money in the sense that they realize they have a burden of caring for their parents. Um, they realize that there's a big cost burden to having more than one child or in some cases any children. Um, and so we are hitting that point now where you have people who've achieved a pretty good quality of life that they live in a tier one or tier two city in China uh, who are now saying, look, I don't have enough money to have those kids. So in that sense, yes, we have kind of gotten old before we get rich here. Um, I think that China has done a reasonably good job of transitioning to a more high-tech society and taking inefficiency out of the economy uh, as much as possible. I mean, we've seen how far we've come with super apps, with advanced automation, um, but it's still not really truly enough to overcome this demographic issue that we have. So, so I, I do think there are going to be some, some tough times over the next few years as we kind of complete that transition and get to a more stable population base. Yeah, what, what do you think of Professor Gibbs' suggestion that, that uh, China doesn't really have the skill set to restructure the economy to become a consumer-based economy? Well, I think if you see well, what happened in the urbanization, I think um, uh, the internal migration, I think we are, you can see some of the young people in the poor rural region, I think they move to uh, the coastal, more urbanized cities. I think they look for jobs. 
And it actually, because of this international uh, migration, it actually, some of the provinces, actually, they can become rich uh, without um, getting older because I think they are being benefited, I think, from the migration from this young rural region, I think, to the richer urban region. So I think if we have a good uh, planning, I think you can redeploy, I think, this sort of manpower strategically and provide sufficient training and also have the develop the infrastructure, I think, for the economic development. I think, yes, it is, uh, time is not on our side, but it's late better than never. But I think it is still uh, something that we can work on. Ben Cavender, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think from a, from a training and talent standpoint, there, there is a gap right now. We, we have an issue where we basically have to soak up eight-plus million new college graduates into the workforce every year and create white-collar or green-collar jobs for all of those people. And the reality right now is there aren't enough good quality jobs to go around to match the number of new entrants into the workforce. But at the same time, um, a lot of these people are not really getting development of the skill sets they need to be truly effective in a fast-moving corporate environment. Uh, a lot of universities still don't really have a curriculum in place to prepare a lot of these people. So you have a situation where you have somebody who's working security in the Shanghai Metro who has a college degree and feels very underemployed right now, and, and that's going to be a persistent challenge. I, I think the government's been trying very hard to take a leadership position in new industries that are going to create those jobs, but it still takes time for those industries to develop, and we're in the meantime going to be in a situation where we, we do continue to have that talent gap. Yeah, Mark O'Neill, a lot of this sounds very technocratic. No problem. We'll just introduce training programs. We'll get people, we'll skill them up, these types of things. But I mean, it's, it culturally, um, things don't move that quickly. Like, are, are people really geared up to make that transition into a, into a, I mean, almost like a high-tech Japanese-style culture when they haven't, you know, is the culture well, there? Well, of course, it, 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 well, this transition will take a very long time. Uh, you know, uh, People who come from the countryside, they, they are not so skilled. They will need a lot of training. So this whole transition will take a long time. But I, I, I think we must speak about the health system. This is a very important aspect of this issue. Um, at the moment, 14.9% uh, of the population is 65 or over. We've seen, you know, since December 7th, how the hospitals are having the greatest difficulty dealing with this flood of uh, COVID patients. So the question is, uh, will the medical system be able to look after the old people going forward? And will there be enough funding uh, from taxes from the young people to fund the medical system? So I, I think this is going to be a, a very big challenge <clears throat> Uh, as a result of this population decline. I mean, uh, supposedly the, the health system is, is you know, un underfunded at this point, and you're saying that they're not going to be able to have the demographics to, to improve on that situation. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I haven't got the breakdown of the, you know, the health spending in all the provinces in front of me, so I can't give you a very detailed answer. But yes, the, 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 the benefit of having such a large, young working population is that you have... Um, uh, high income from taxes. You have young people who are very willing to set aside a part of their income to give to their parents and their grandparents. 
and this pool of money is going to shrink while, while the number of older people who require medical attention is going to increase. So, yeah, this is going to be a very big uh, challenge, especially outside the big cities. I mean, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, I mean, they, they have excellent hospitals. Yeah. But uh, in second-tier cities or in rural areas, you know, the money available for spending is, is limited. So I think this will be a, a very big consideration for the planners in Beijing looking at the next 10, 20 years. Yes, of course, this aging population um, problem is not unique to China. In France, for example, you know, they, they've just uh, increased their retirement age from 60 to 62 to make people work, work longer. Um, is, that a, is, is that something that China should be considering? Uh, certainly, yeah. I, I think this is very, a very good idea. And, you know, Chinese people live longer and they're much more healthier than their parents and their grandparents were. So, so uh, yeah, I think many of them are, uh, are, are willing to work. That's certainly a good idea. And yeah. the, the, the question of how you fund the, the health system, uh, you know, uh, who should pay, how much should they pay, um, this is also something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, the situation in the UK at the moment is critical in the NHS. So yeah. I said to various British friends, well, why don't they demand a minimum low fee for everyone who enters an NHS facility, which would bring, you know, an immediate flood of money into, into the system? And everyone just shook their head and say, no, no, it's politically completely unacceptable. You know, the public is now used to this system of free uh, free care at a, when you're admitted. Mm. Right. So, so, I mean, China, too, has to address this issue of, of how to fund the medical system and how much should be paid by the patient and then how much should be paid by the government. Paul, Paul Yip, are these tweaks around the edges going to do the job or does this require, or is it too late unless there's some kind of a radical overhaul that really nobody's proposed? Well, I, I think um, what you can see in China in the past uh, uh, decade or so, I think uh, they have been transforming in all um, all fronts. I think we are um, talking about, yes, I think the extension of the retirement age is, is always on the card. I think because I think usually China uh, has a retirement age very early. They double the women, they retire at the age of 50 and the men at age 55. Sorry, that's, that's an official for, what is that? Is that for government workers yeah, or is that corporate? Yeah, or who? Uh, uh, that is for the government workers, right? Oh. So, so then uh, now when you see the life expectancy is, is uh, now we are talking about 77 or 82 for men and women respectively. So I think we do have a lot of room, I think, for improvement, I think, to uh, ensure that we have sufficient workforce. And But now uh, what the, the other worry is about the pension front. Uh, I mean, because the people live longer now, I mean, would uh, the government have enough money to pay for the pension fund? But then I think the reorganization, I think, or the retraining of the um, the so-called the workforce, I think China, I think, has been uh, working well. But uh, but which is true, I think, in the rural area or in the western coast, in the western part of China, so I think uh, I think uh, they might not have uh, that sort of skill set yet. But I think with the very strategic deployment or the uh, um, the training of the manpower, and also if we can start to develop something at the western part of China, I think that will um, uh, have to I think to uh, do the so-called the rebalancing. 
I think of the differences between the rural and the urban area or the West Coast from the East Coast as well. Yeah. We've got a uh, Facebook post here from TC Tung, uh, the on our he says the one-child policy, or one-and-a-half in rural areas, was abolished in the mid-2010s that didn't encourage people in the mainland China to have more children. It's sad to see that authorities simply use money to entice people to have children. Raising a family is a lifelong commitment, and finance is only one factor. Given the current social environment in mainland China, do you really think people want to raise children there? That's from T.C. Tsong. Uh, ben Cavender um, do people want to have children? I mean, I'm looking at uh, a Reuters piece where they had some interesting data on what people are buying and what they are searching for on Baidu. Uh, and, you know, interest in baby strollers, cribs, baby bottles has just, just cratered down uh, 40 plus percent during, uh, you know, during the last couple of years. Uh, whereas people are just looking into like nursing homes and things like that is skyrocketing. Um, what is research tell? Like, should we be more looking to market indicators like that uh, for where China is headed in terms of uh, baby making? I think that, that those search numbers definitely paint a picture. If you go back even five years, categories like imported baby formula were massive growth opportunities, both for international brands as well as for domestic Chinese brands that maybe purchased overseas farms or overseas operations so they could be selling an international product here that people believed was safe. And so you, you still had a lot of interest in having kids. I think what's happened over the last decade, though, and certainly over the last five years, is that um, people have really gotten to the point where they feel like the cost of raising a kid successfully and giving that child um, an opportunity to have a better life than they perceive they have had has really dropped down effectively to zero with a lot of people that we interview basically saying, we don't think we can give a child a better quality of life, so we're really considering whether or not we even want to have one, or I quite like having my career and my free time and my hobbies, and I don't really want to give that up. I think something that sort of sometimes gets lost in this, this one-child policy discussion is that um, the people who are making decisions now for themselves and for their families, by and large, are only children and have been raised as only children and have been, to some degree, doted on by their parents and their grandparents, and really like having that support system in place for them and not having that support system go in place for um, somebody else for, for one of their kids. And so you have a lot of people saying, listen, I just don't want to give up my freedoms, so I'm not going to have a kid. Or it's too stressful to think about paying for education, paying for all their clothes, paying for the things they need to get ahead, and so I'm just not going to do it. And, and that's something we hear over and over and over again in discussions we have. And you definitely see it with the search data with um, you know, the searches for mother-baby products really being quite a bit lower um, now than they were pre-pandemic. Um, I think that things will improve slightly as China reopens and as concerns over uh, COVID-19 kind of die down. But I don't think we're in a healthy place right now. Yeah, I mean, another obvious reason why why um, less women are willing to have um, children is simply there's a, as a result of the one-child policy, there's simply more men than women in China. And those women, um, they now have uh, more job opportunities. So they just don't want to be bogged down by a family. Paul Yip, what do you think? Well, it is true that I think the small family size has already become the norm of um, in modern China and also in other uh, high-income societies in Asia as well. 
so I think, uh, yes, I think the women now, uh, they are more uh, educated, more financially independent. I think they do not uh, need to have a marriage, I think, to improve, I think, their life chances. So I think, um, and, and, and then so when the government, I mean, not only the, the meaning government, there's uh, a lot of government trying to use the uh, baby bonus and then try to have some incentive, I mean, to increase the birth rate. I think it will work, I think, for those um for those couples who really like to have children and uh, who have difficulties. But for those uh, couples who do not want to have uh, children, uh, it is very uh, difficult, if not impossible, I think, uh, to make them to have baby because of that incentives. So I think somehow, I think uh, it is it's a, it's a good policy, but I think the, the impact is, uh, will be expected to be quite limited. And then I think we really have to work harder, I think, to try to uh, make sure that our present workforce can increase our productivities and then uh, without relying on uh, this uh, sort of additional baby that could uh, come by because of these incentives. Okay, so we keep talking here um, about incentives to have more children. Do we actually need more people on, on this planet, Mark O'Neill? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the newspaper headlines today and yesterday were saying what a disaster this is for China. But um, China is the world's most populous, uh, populous country. The population now is double what it was, uh, you know, 949. So uh, I think a smaller population brings many benefits for China. So, you know, in the longer, longer term, I, I think it's good to have a lower population. But as all the speakers today have said, it, it, it's a very tricky transition because, especially with the older people, uh, there is uh, hundreds of millions of them, and they've got to be looked after, and they've got to have proper medical care. And so the transition to move to a population of, I've seen it's about 760 million by the end of the century, mm. which of course would be a much better population for China, that would be a better outcome. Um, there are but it's hard to get there. Yeah, and there are geopolitical considerations that we will have to get into after the news, which is coming up in just a few seconds. Uh, thank you very much to our guest. Ben Cavender is going to be leaving us, uh, the Managing Director of China Market Research Group. But we're going to continue with Paul Yip from Hong Kong U and uh, author Mark O'Neill. And we're back on Back Chat with Andrew Work and Jenny Lamb. Uh, we had on the first part of the show Ben Cavender, Managing Director of China Market Research Group, who has gone on his way. But we continue with Paul Yip, Chair Professor, Population Health, Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. We also have Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst. And we now welcome to the show John Ma, Associate Professor of Social Science, uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Uh, good morning, Professor Ma. Uh, good morning, Mark. Good morning. Now, we, yeah, we've had a lot of talk about the policy, the impact, um, and one of the things we haven't touched on is that some cities have rolled out cash incentives to encourage couples to have more babies. How useful do you think that's going to be? Uh, you know, you know, give uh, some cash to a couple to give birth. Uh, it's, it's the effect of increasing income, okay? But how much? how significant it would be, uh, you know, um, I think, you know, the main thing is that uh, the cost of raising children have been increased so significantly, okay, 
It's a small amount of income um, given to a couple to um, encourage them to give birth. Uh, the effect might not be very significant, okay? But of course, it's, uh, it's positive, okay? Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I don't expect the effect would be uh, very strong. Well, you say not enough. I mean, in the big city like Shanghai, how much, how many yuan do you think is enough, realistically? Um, yeah, there, there are many ways, not just give cash, uh, for example, tax relief, or similar things uh, might be more effective. Okay, so we have a we have a, a, a note here from our listener T C Zheng. He commented earlier on the one child policy. Now he says, for those who want to have children, many of them are choosing to give birth abroad if they have the financial means. He says he lives in a city where birth tourism is a serious problem or was a serious problem. So what does he tell tell you about raising a family in mainland China? Um, so I, I suppose you know he what he's saying is that. It's not that Chinese couples are not willing to have children. It's just that they're not willing to have children in mainland China. Do you think? What do you, what do you think of that idea, Professor Ma? Um, yeah. Well, you know, you always have uh, many cases of a different type. Okay, uh, but I would say, you know, as a demographer, you know, uh, and also as a, um, a you know, expert. A specialist on migration research. I think you know you got to take a, a count, uh, the quantity, you know, uh, distribution of the population. Okay, uh, of course, you know, um, you know, if you have alternatives uh, to go some, somewhere else um, to have um, a better opportunity, uh, that's something different. But you know, how, how many? You know, that's uh, the percentage. Uh, of people, okay. So we, we basically we talk about the uh, you know the big picture, the the population structure, uh, and uh, the big compo major component to affect the population growth, okay. Uh, but not um, you know uh, the streams, okay. Uh, so um, that's that's my. Uh so we, we we appear to have lost uh, Professor Ma there. But what what do you think, Paul Yip? Um, we were talking about it's not the fact that Chinese couples don't want to have. Uh, he's he's not there either. Mark O'Neill, are you there? Yes, yes. Okay. So what do you think of that idea? It's not that the young Chinese couples are unwilling to have children. It's just that they don't want them to be in mainland China. No, I, I, no. I, I mean, I think that's slightly misleading. Uh, you know, if you're wealthy and you have the means, you know, and you want a U.S. passport, well, then you know, you give birth to a child in the USA. But it's a very small proportion of people. It's not a major policy matter. No, I, I think the the issues are not only money, as one of your speakers said, but I think the issues are the same as for women all over the world. Um, uh, a woman who wants to to give birth, she wants to know about childcare. What's available to her? You know, are there places nearby that she can take her child uh, so that she can go back to work? Are they affordable? What's the attitude of her employer to her giving birth? Will she be given three months uh, maternity leave and her job is guaranteed when she goes back? That's not always the case in China. Um, uh, is 
Is the father given any paternity leave, as far as I know, not in China? But So th- there, there are policies the government could use to make this transition easier. And, of course, if you live in a first-tier city in China, you have a huge mortgage, um, as they call them, mortgage slaves. You know, you'll be spending 10 or 20 or even 30 years paying for your apartment. Mm. So this is a, a major consideration for for couples. So if I have a child, that's going to cost me so much, but I'm already committed to 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 paying for for this apartment. So if the government could find ways to relieve the mortgage burden, then uh, that would make uh, make it more attractive to have to have children, and then. You know, apartments are very small. So, you know, in, in, in China of 100 years ago, people lived in large families, large houses, and there were aunts and uncles and grandparents available to, to look after your children. You didn't have to think, worry about that. But now most people in the big cities live in a small apartment and their parents may live nearby or they may live in another city. Mm. So th- this is another anxiety for, for couples. Yeah, for a lot, for the past 30 years, children were lucky to have their parents living in the same place, not, you know, hours and hours away, see the once a year, year, much less grandparents. Um, You know, The Economist had a piece this week in praise of grandparents. And instead of thinking of grandparents as a burden, you know, research was showing in some countries that having uh, fewer children meant that there were more grandparents per child, and they were actually helping women to get into the workforce because the grandparents were picking up a lot of the childcare. But this, you know, when you looked at it, it was places like Mexico and in in Africa, lower income places, people had children younger. So the grandparents were younger, still mobile. So it wasn't, I have to take care of my grandparents. It was, my grandparents can take care of my children. But I mean, is is part of the problem that people are having children much later in life? I mean, they're they're starting to have children in their mid thirties. You know, they're not gonna have three or four kids because they're gonna hit up against the, the 40 year barrier. Um, after which it becomes difficult and problematic to conceive. Um, I mean, is, is, is the, the delay of child raising reducing the overall numbers? Yes, uh, you're, you're quite right. I mean, it's just, just as it is in, in Japan, uh, Taiwan, Korea, and in, in, in Europe also. Uh, women are better educated. They're marrying later. They often want to work for a few years, you know, establish their credentials as a professional in their job, and only then will they think about um, having children. So you're right, they're not going to have a very big family. And the, 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 I think the mentality of grandparents has changed too. I mean, I, I have a friend in Shanghai, she's got a daughter of 12, and her mother lives not far away, but the mother is not prepared to give unconditional care of the daughter. Mm-hmm. I had assumed that, you know, once the daughter was born, the grandmother would be available like 24 hours a day and be very willing to do that. Yeah. But that's not the case. Uh, her mother is a Shanghai lady, you know, uh, grown up in, in Shanghai, very cultivated. You know, she has her own life. So she's very happy to see her granddaughter and uh, take care of her, but not uh, without limits. Grandma's so, got to go on. That's also a change that's happened in Chinese society. So mm. grandparents are also different. Gotcha, uh, Professor uh, Professor Yip. You know, do you want to do you want to follow that? Is is the delay of childbearing also uh, reducing overall numbers? 
Well, yes, when you can see now the, the uh, child, um, the marriage uh, age has been postponing, and subsequently, I think the childbearing age is also um, uh, delaying, and then the window to conceive the baby is limited. So I think uh, if we cannot remove the barriers, I think to promote the marriage, I think to make them to get married a bit earlier, I think I don't think the fertility uh, would have much changes. But as I said before, no, I think I think now the um, the people think about marriage and fertility are very much different from the old days. I think I think the young people, I think they have the mind of their own. I think they like to live. I think they enjoy the freedom. They do not want to live with the worries of the financial to raise up my family. I think these are the real things. So, 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 so I think I think it is not only uh, a one single policy that can reverse the tide. I think if you want to do anything right, I think not only the cash bonus, but we are talking about the whole package about the, how to promote this family-friendly working environment and how to make the childcare services more very available. I think these are the important uh, things that they have to address in a holistic manner, um, and rather than just saying that, well, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars, I think that we have another babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so while China's birth rate is declining, um, India's birth rate is not declining. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just looked it up now, uh, just for comparison's sake. You know, here in Hong Kong, our birth rate. This is a 2020 figure. Hong Kong is actually only 0.57 mm-hmm. uh, births per woman. In in mainland China, 1.28. In India, it's is still two. What are the long-term implications for China when India surpasses China as the most populous country? Well, I think when you, if you see what happened in China, uh, I think what happened in, in, in India, I think it's just a matter of time. I think if their education level has uh, increased among the women and then if their marriage uh, rate uh, will go down further, then I think, I think eventually, I mean, in, uh, in five or ten years' time, I think they would experience the same things now. So, so, so yes, I think uh, they have a younger workforce, which is uh, they will make them more competitive, I think, than we are now. Yeah, presumably India would have to make some changes in the policy arena to make the most of that population. Uh, John Ma, final word on the topic. What, what would be your top uh, two or three recommendations for uh, helping China to get their, their birth rate back on track? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I talked briefly about this, this news, the big news uh, to demographers. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a, people talk about shrinkage population. But I think it's, uh, you know, um, um, too early to say that because I'm not confident because this, this, this data from the survey rather than the census. So uh, the difference of, uh, you know, 850,000 uh, probably uh, just, you know, could be within the range of the error, okay? So uh, that's something. But, you know, this point, I, I would say, uh, we are coming to uh, the age of zero growth of the population uh, in the next two decades. Okay, so uh, then you know um, because it's mainly determined by 
uh, age structure and temporary by the pandemic. Okay, so then you know then comes to a point uh, how to um, uh, what way uh, measures in the future. Okay? And I, I think it's a then economic growth uh, to give birth, confidence to young people to get married and give birth. You know, mm. um, that, that's important, especially you know uh, in my field, my, migrants. Okay, we have uh, we have uh, probably three hundred um, uh, million um, uh, migrants in China. Okay, but now we still have hukou system. Okay. So they didn't have much confidence to give birth to um, to the second or third, you know, because the cost had been rise had been rising uh, so significantly. Okay? Mm. So uh, another thing uh, is to uh, people talk, keep on talking about low fertility. One thing we should uh, we should do in the future is to uh, make China more open, more international, and also have an effective immigration system to attract uh, skilled labor mm-hmm. okay, uh, from other countries, uh, not in thousands, but in millions. Okay? That's, that's something uh, we, we need to, uh, to do. Um, and also, uh, Paul uh, have talked about the increase the productivity of the labor, etc. Also uh, important. And uh, uh, one, one of the suggestions uh, to Chinese government to totally abolish the, any restrictions on fertility. Okay, uh, now you know, uh, you know, so from one child to two child to third child, you know, uh, just abolish any restrictions and shift the policy measures and pro- uh, to encourage birth. Okay, uh, as I said, especially uh, migrants. Okay, mm. and. Uh, uh, last one, we said, you know, we we are into the age. It, it's going to last for um, uh, several decades. Okay? So we have to get used to the zero growth. Yeah. Okay? So we have to get get used, like in Japan and in other developed countries. Okay? Right, but and, then, and also prepare for the worst, the negative growth in sure. the future. Okay, well, I think among those probably freeing up the hukou and the uh, and and opening up to immigration are probably the two most radical ideas. From John Ma, associate professor of social science, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, uh, we also uh, had with us. I'd uh, like to thank Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst, and Paul Yip. Chair Professor uh, Population Health at University of Hong Kong. We also had a quick note from Martin, who said uh, maybe agreed with John Ma a little bit and said yes. China's population declined last year, which is not surprising given the country's three-year strict zero-COVID restrictions, a difficult economic situation, and an uncertain future for many individuals. Similarly to the rest of the world, which had an effect on birth rates during the pandemic, it may be too soon to draw long-term judgment based on a single year's data. And that is from Martin, and this is Backchat. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, uh, we're back on Backchat, and we're, we're looking at a new study center dedicated to the needs of ethnic minority children who have special education needs. Uh, we've got a uh, bona fide expert on this, uh, Shalini Matani, who is the founder and CEO of the Zubin Foundation. Uh, Shalini, can you, uh, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Andrew. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thank. Uh, good to have you on. Um, so please tell us about this new study center. 
Yes, um, I just want to contextualise this a little bit. You just had some speakers talk about population decline in various places, including Hong Kong. Now, one population in Hong Kong that is growing is the Hong Kong ethnic minority population. These are Hong Kong people, they're not Chinese, and they represent about 4% of the population. Now, a lot of this population were born and raised in Hong Kong, and like every other population, there are special education needs amongst children and adults. And the needs of the SEN community, the special education needs community in the uh, non-Chinese community um, for lower-income families hasn't really been addressed. So the Zubin's Family Centre, which just opened yesterday in Austin MTR, will give free therapy to public school children um, who are non-Chinese and who have demonstrated, um, you know, uh, symptoms um, of ADHD and autism. Oh, so you're specifically focused on ADHD and autism, uh, and is, that, is that the entire autism spectrum, including Asperger's, or are you, are you really trying to focus on helping the people that have the most, uh, the most dire needs? So the referrals will come from public schools and from low-income families themselves, and it will be focused on primary-aged children where we see a real gap, and it will be focused on those children already in mainstream schools but aren't able to access education because of their ADHD and autism. How, how common is um, this autism problem among the local ethnic minority children? Well, the, the, the problem of special education needs is a problem that is rising across the world. Hong Kong is no different. Um, we have in Hong Kong um, 1,260 diagnosed cases of kids in primary school who are ethnic minorities. But we know that the numbers are much harder and much higher. And one of the issues we see with um, with ethnic minorities in mainstream public schools. Our teachers are diagnosing or putting these children on list to receive diagnosis much later than Hong Kong Chinese children. And part of the reason is teachers are seeing in some cases that the ethnic minority children may be, for example, slower to learn or exhibit certain um, certain behaviours. But what they then do is they put this down to the child learning multiple languages at the same time. And so they don't flag it as this child needing to see a psychiatrist and get a diagnosis. So a lot of the time, these children are receiving diagnosis later. Now, the Zubin Family Center is not waiting for the diagnosis. So whether a child has a diagnosis or is waiting for a diagnosis, um, we, we don't care. We want to bring um, the child to therapy as soon as possible because we do know that the that the earlier the child is, the younger the child is receiving therapy, the better it is for the child in terms of uh, being able to develop key skills. Right. So you're giving them earlier assessment. Um, how young are these children, and in particular, which ethnic minority groups is most in need of the service? So we are giving primary school age children, so six years to twelve years. Um, ethnic minorities are non-Chinese who are in low-income families in public schools and who have um, signs of autism and, and or ADHD. Okay, so we're talking Nepalese, Filipino, South Asian... Uh... Southeast, Southeast Asian children for the most part. Okay. 
Gotcha. And, and the, family, the family centre is also providing free mental health services to ethnic minority children age six and above because there are no um, counsellors providing free therapy to children in their native language. And we do see quite a lot of intergenerational trauma and abuse. Right. And I noticed with a lot of uh, different services focused on health issues in children, uh, quite often now they're also helping to provide counselling and support for the parents as Correct. well. And I mean, are yes, you, are you able to do that as well? Yes, and it's actually, yes, yes, we are. And actually the centre actually has a parent room um, specifically to bring parents together because while we provide the child with therapy, we need to bring the parents um, up the learning curve as well. And often, um, you know, there are lots of myths about why a child has special needs and we want to uh, try and demystify special needs to the parent community. Do you want to hit us with a couple of those myths so we can clear some up for some of our listeners right now? Um, that the child is cursed um, or that the mother did something terribly wrong, um, that there has been um, some sort of voodoo put on the family. Um, there are all kinds of all kinds of myths that there's a devil in the child. Right. Um, so, yeah, so we try and demystify uh, those notions. Okay, so you're providing these therapy in the native language. Now, uh, is it easy to find therapists who who can provide that service in in the in the different native languages so what we do with the mental health um, issue is we provide them in native language in nepali hindi urdu english and for the therapies for special needs so uh, occupational therapy speech therapy um, behavior therapy often they'll they will be provided in english but there will be um a qualified counsellor working alongside uh, the therapist uh, to work with the child and and the parents as well. So the therapist is more like a translator, are you saying? Well, the actual therapist who will be providing the, let's say, speech therapy, maybe someone, maybe uh, um, a professional from Chinese University of Hong Kong who speaks English, but with them will be one of our trained counsellors, and there'll be a translator, but there's much more than translation. It's also trying to explain the reasons for things, and um, like I say, um, you know, debunking um, some of the myths that, that are out there. Yeah, and I, how hard is it to recruit people especially in the native uh, languages because i understand getting special education needs uh professionals in any setting every like globally is really tough right now i mean how, how are you how tough is it for you guys to be able to get people and are you know if you need to bring them from abroad are you able to get visas so what we for our mental health counselors who do the the mental health counseling they, we have quite a few of them, not enough. And part of the problem in Hong Kong is when you go to the universities, the Hong Kong universities, and you look at their counseling degrees and their um, psychology degrees, there are almost no ethnic minorities um, in their student pool. So, in fact, most of our counselors are uh, overseas trained um, or they were trained in Hong Kong with a distance learning program and receive their, um, you know, face-to-face training in an NGO here. But we really do have a dearth of professionals. So there will be a time where I think we will have to import uh, individuals to help out. Or encourage the local ethnic minority students to go into those fields. Well, I think there is no dearth of children, uh, young people wanting to go into those fields. The problem isn't the lack of the people wanting to. It's the problem at the university side, admitting those individuals who are ethnic minorities. We just 
we just see a very, very low acceptance rate. Wow. And for people, are they able to do, are they able to, for example, to do practicums and, and get their hours towards the certification by coming to your center? Is that a potential yeah. little talent so pool we, you could work with? Yeah. So we do provide practicum hours to um, social workers and to other professionals in Hong Kong who need those, particularly ethnic minorities. Because like I said, we really do want to build the talent pool. We just do not see the universities doing their job and bringing in a diverse talent pool of, of students. And, and how about uh, maybe health professionals that have come from other places who might actually have quite a bit of experience but need to get practicum hours to get a local license but maybe don't speak Cantonese? Would, would they be able to get in touch with you and uh, see if they might yes, be able absolutely. to work with you? Absolutely. Okay. So, in fact, most of our, our team are made up of, of that profile of individual. Oh. Right. So, so you mentioned the university admission um, yes. being the problem. Uh, so the, the government has had these outreach programs in, in the past years, you know, helping um, ethnic minority children with, with language and learning. Has that done anything to increase the number of university admission for ethnic I think minority it's done, kids? I think it's done a great deal. So I do think that if I compare today to three years ago, four years ago, the numbers of ethnic minority youth going to university has increased. It's certainly not enough, but it's increased quite significantly. And I can tell by the numbers of applicants we get at the Zubin Foundation for scholarships, because we also give scholarships to ethnic minority youth to go to university. And the numbers have gone through the roof. However, the problem is they seem to be very much pigeonholed in certain degrees, in certain associate degrees. And when we have had individuals who've tried to enter the social worker route or the psychology route, very small numbers make it through. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Very quickly before you go, Shalini, uh, how do people find out where the website is or get in touch with you? Very quick hit. Zubinfoundation.org. Okay, zubinfoundation.org. Thank you very much. That is uh, Shalini Matani, the founder and CEO of the Zubin Foundation. All right, thank you very much uh, to you for listening, calling, and getting in touch online, hitting our Facebook page. We do appreciate it. Uh, today's show was produced by Yuki Tsang, doing double duty on the shows today. Our sound man today was James Lung. Uh, tomorrow on Back Chat, I'm going to be back uh, with Danny Giddings this time. It was an absolute pleasure with you today, Jenny Lamb. Hope you're not jealous of me and Danny tomorrow. We'll have you back soon, I'm sure. Uh, weather today, mainly fine and dry. It's re looking really nice. Uh, cold in the morning. Maximum temperature will heat up to about 17 degrees during the daytime. Uh, the current temperature is 13 degrees Celsius with 56% humidity. Alcoholic beverages usually have a high calorie count. A 330 milliliter can of common beer can contain around 140 kilocalories. 